Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to the Law and Blockchain Podcast, hosted by Amy Wan, CEO of SageWise, a safety net for smart contracts and consultant for Security Token Academy. Hi, everybody. This is a special edition of the Law and Blockchain Podcast. Um, today, we are here with two very special guests um, to talk about basically, a, you know, we're giving a huge rundown of everything that's happened SEC related on um, ICOs and tokens and fundraising um, from the perspective of the SEC. And, and to really break that subject down, we have Jason Gottlieb. He's partner over at Morrison and uh, Cohen, and he is a, uh, a securities litigation attorney. So he's the guy that you would call if you did one of those 2017 ICOs that was not compliant with securities laws. And now the SEC is subpoenaing you. Um, and we also have Mark Boyron, a partner at Fisher Boyles, who is a transactional securities attorney, meaning if you have not gone out and done one of these token offerings, but you want to, um, he's the guy that you would call to do it compliantly from the outset. So guys, thanks so much for taking the time and joining me today. Thanks, Amy. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Thanks for okay. Me, yeah, definitely. So let's start off with the Dow report. Um, and the Dow report came out in uh, July 27th, 2017. And that was, you know, the first thing that the SEC ever said about all this ICO madness um, and it was at the peak of ICO craziness. Um, Jason, can you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about what was the Dow report and what was its significance? Let's let. How about we we switch off, Mark? Why don't you take this and uh, I'll I'll I'll, add the, I'll be the color commentator. Sure, sounds good. Um, so so the Dow report, as Amy said, was kind of the the let's put everyone on notice action that the SEC took. And essentially uh, what it was, was a DAO, so a decentralized autonomous organization, um, that did an ICO, raised about $150 million um, and was later hacked. And in that ICO, it did what, what everyone was doing at the time, which was it reached out to, to thousands of people uh, to raise money, not really looking at you know, any compliance matters. And it did it all over the world, including in the U.S. And when the SEC looked at that, uh, the SEC said, okay, well, is that a security or not? And really, the SEC went through kind of the definition of what a security is, one thing being an investment contract. You determine whether something's an investment contract by looking at the Howey test. So without going to, into the Howey test in detail, because we've done that, the, IC, the, the SEC kind of walked through uh, exactly whether there's an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit uh, from the efforts of others. And essentially what the SEC said is, yes, uh, that's exactly what the Dow token was. Uh, then said, well, then you should have been registered or found an exemption to registration when you sold, uh, when you offered and sold those tokens. And then uh, a little bit more on a side note said, and anyone who's trading these tokens, any exchange needs to be registered either as a national securities exchange or exempt from registration as an exchange. And, and if you're not, uh, then you're going to be liable for trading these. And that was, again, just the, the warning shot that the SEC gave, um, but it was very general in nature uh, and, and I think unclear to many participants. Yeah, Great. I, I, Jason, do you want to... Add color. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right. Uh, thanks, Amy. Thank, thanks, Mark. That was a, a, a good overview. I, I think that you know, as as Amy said, this happens uh, in kind of the the height of the 2017 ICO boom, and as as Mark said, it was really a shot across the bow, both towards issuers and the exchanges. Um, I think the SEC went out of their way in the Dow report to tell all of these folks who were issuing uh, tokens on the theory that they were just utility tokens and therefore they were not securities, that the SEC did not view tokens that way. 
Uh, the SEC cited an old chestnut of a case to say that the, the reach of the federal securities laws doesn't stop with the, the obvious and commonplace novel and uncommon or irregular devices, whatever they appear to be, are also reached if they fit the uh, conduct of, of the Howey test. So I think the SEC is saying to all the ICO participants, just because you can uh, call it a utility token doesn't mean it is. It, if, it's, uh, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, then it's a security duck. But what, but what, and yeah, and what I'd add to that is, you know, as uh, just, just representing companies at the time, the question was really, what does this mean for all the diverse tokens that were out there? You know, DAO token was one thing. It had voting rights, but it also had all these economic rights that made it essentially a fund. What did this mean for tokens that weren't? It didn't have the same kind of economic rights to it, but really just had utility. And I think at that time, that wasn't really clear. Very interesting. Um, and I, you know, I think what's also really interesting is the effect that it had, right? Like if you were about to go do an ICO, um, you know, the SEC statement said a certain thing to you. If you were in the middle of doing it, it also said a certain thing to you. And if you had already done your ICO, you had already raised that money. Well, um, you know, at, at least the good thing about that was that, uh, you know, it, it basically said, we're not going to look at you nearly as much. But it also put these people who had already raised money in a strange um, almost, I would say, purgatory, right? Because then it's like, well, what now from here? Um, and, and there wasn't really a clear path forward for what they should do to uh, actually correct their, you know, what should have been a securities offering. But we can talk about that in a second. The next case that I want to talk about is Munchie. And Munchie, it's, um, it hits close to home because it's actually a California group. I, I believe the startup was based in San Francisco. So Jason, do you want to, do you want to take this one? Sure. That's right. It was a, it's a San Francisco based company and it, it hits close to home for me as well uh, because their product was an app that allowed users to uh, post photos and reviews of meals they eat in restaurants and uh, eating meals in restaurants is, is near and dear to my heart. <laughs> what they did was uh, they, they decided to launch an ICO uh, themselves uh, and offering a, a token that they said would have utility in their system. They issued a white paper that asserted that they had done a Howey analysis uh, referencing the Dow report and stated is, is currently designed the sale of the Munchie utility token does not pose a significant risk of implicating federal securities laws. The white paper didn't set forth that analysis, but, but it, it asserted that they had done that analysis. So in the, in the fall of 2017, they were gearing up for this ICO, which they announced, I believe, uh, would, on, on October 1st, and they started to sell their, their tokens on Halloween, on October 31st, 2017. Uh, the very next day, the uh, staff at the SEC called them up and said, hey guys, stop. And uh, within hours, uh, Munchie stopped selling their tokens, uh, having not delivered any tokens to uh, any purchasers yet. And they returned the $60,000 or so uh, to the 40 people who had purchased their tokens. Uh, so this was, I guess, another shot across the bow uh, by the SEC and in this one, Munchie actually got off pretty light. There was, there was uh, no civil penalty assessed, just an order that Munchie cease and desist from any future violations of Section 5 of the Securities Act, that, that's the, the section governing registration. Uh, because I, I think in this case, there was sort of no harm, no foul. They, they started to do it. The SEC said stop, and they stopped right away and returned all the money that they had taken in. Fantastic. Mark, do you have anything you want to add? Uh, sure. I think this one was, was uh, interesting from an issuer's perspective um, because it was the first time now that the SEC said, okay, here's a token that purports to be a utility token used in an ecosystem very different from the DAO token, um, but this is nonetheless a security. And it pointed to, to one big thing that, that at least 
I think a lot of uh, folks found important was the fact that the marketing of the token uh, was done at, towards ICO investors rather than users of the app. And so that kind of left open the question, well, what happens if the, the you know, Munchie had actually just targeted app users rather than investors uh, as a whole? But it also kind of was a, a issue for all the companies at the time saying, well, it's the investors that want to buy our tokens. And so to me, that was, that was kind of my, A, the SEC just gave us all a fair warning thought. Um, but it turns out, as we'll talk about later, that that might not actually really be the case, that, that maybe uh, that warning was the Dow. Very interesting. Um, I'm going to skip a couple cases um, and come back to them later. But let's fast forward about a year and let's talk about Airfox and Paragon. Those were two more recent SEC enforcement actions. I think they actually came out on November 16th of this year, so really just a month ago. Um, and they were really significant, right? So who wants to take that? I can take those. Um, so you know, Paragon and Air Fox, um, those orders came out on the same day. And so I'll kind of treat them together. Um, and I'll talk about Paragon because that was maybe the, the kind of one of the better known, uh, known ICOs uh, for the simple reason that it was extremely public at the time. Um, and, it, you know, essentially that was, again, your, your traditional ICO uh, promising big returns. And the SEC walks through that uh, in their order and uh, essentially saying, you know, here's all the things that we're going to use our token for, but, but really you're just going to make money off of it. Um, and what the SEC said is, hey, you should go back to the Dow report where we already gave you that warning. And, and that really was when the, SEC, the SEC's view of, of when that warning happened, that tokens are security. And, and you should have known that at the time. Now, the interesting thing for, for Paragon is that you know, at the time of the Dow report, Paragon was either you know, uh, in the early stages or, or maybe a little bit later even in preparing their ICO. So they had that tough decision to make. Well, this, this Dow report came out, what do I do? Uh, and clearly they decided, well, this one's not applicable to me because there's still this ray of light that maybe if you just have use with your token, you can go ahead and sell it to investors anyway. Um, which after the Munchie order comes out, Paragon must be thinking, oh no, because that's exactly what we did. And so essentially what the SEC said was, hey, we're going to go ahead and impose some penalties on you. I think it was about, you know, I think $250,000. Uh, and then it also said, and by the way, you're going to need to essentially make what is akin to a rescission offer to everyone who bought the token. And then you need to file a Form 10, which essentially means registering uh, the securities. Now, obviously, the interesting thing uh, once a Form 10 is filed is, notwithstanding the fact that those are already securities, uh, now it's very obvious that they're securities to all the exchanges around the world. And it brings up the question, what are those exchanges going to do after uh, that Form 10 uh, gets filed and, and becomes effective? All right. So, Jason, I think now we're talking up your alley a lot. First, let's start off with, start off with this. What is rescission? <laughs> uh, rescission is, is effectively a, a, a way of unwinding a transaction here, here a securities transaction. And uh, I think that there was a lot of uh, debate internally at the SEC about how to handle rescission or disgorgement in these ICO cases. Typically, uh, it's no big deal. The investor hands back the security, the company hands back the cash, you unwind the deal, everything is, is done. Um, the, the problem though is uh, some people at the, on the SEC staff were considering that uh, either rescission or, or even disgorgement uh, could have been treated as a remedy which required registration of the security. And because the security wasn't registered, even though, as, as Mark said, uh, in the Paragon and Air Fox elements, the SEC is requiring uh, registration, if the securities are unregistered, then it, it creates a, a problem. Uh, in these two settlements, the, the SEC appears to be circumventing that issue by effectively uh, 
requiring that Paragon and Airfox issue a refund or at least a, a notice to investors uh, that they can get their money back or uh, have, have a right to sue if they'd like. But the language in those settlements uh, packs a, a lot of words into a very small space. And it's, it's actually not quite clear to me how that's going to work. Uh, so, for example, I've seen a, a draft claims notice for Airfox, and I'm not sure whether this is, is final or whether it's been issued or whether Paragon is the same, but the, the draft claims notice indicates that, that investors in the Airfox ICO will be able to tender their tokens and receive back the amount in U.S. dollars that the investor paid for it. So if that's the case, it could be fairly simple. If someone uh, paid $100 and they received that amount of air tokens, they, they return their air tokens and they get their $100 back. Uh, but in the cryptocurrency world, uh, rescission can be a little bit trickier because the SEC leaves unanswered what happens if the consideration paid wasn't cash, but was itself a different cryptocurrency. So if somebody paid for their air tokens with Bitcoin or Litecoin or Ethereum or, or some other cryptocurrency, the value both of the air tokens as well as the crypto that they use to purchase the air tokens has fluctuated significantly. Um, there's been, as, as you all know, a, a pretty big market uh, run up and then collapse. So it's unclear what's going to happen or what position companies are going to be in when called upon to uh, issue any kind of rescission to their uh, investors. Some companies may be well suited to do it, depending on whether they uh, were able to convert their crypto into cash at the top of the market. And for some companies, uh, it may drive them out of business. I think for that reason, it's unclear to me whether these two settlements are going to set out a roadmap for ICO issuers. Uh, some of them uh, may be easily able to afford a, a $250,000 penalty and a rescission offering to all their clients who want to uh, uh, take advantage of that. And some of them are going to go out of business just on, on a $250,000 penalty. You know, yeah, to add to that, there's, there's a couple interesting things that can result as a, from, from following the SEC's process. The first one that's really interesting that, that Jason hinted at is the idea that when you typically make a rescission offer, that is another offering of a security. It's a securities offering. And you need to comply with securities laws in making that rescission offer. Except, first of all, you have unaccredited investors that are probably much above the, the limits for what is permitted under, for example, Reg CF, uh, maybe even Reg A+. Plus. But, but having to go ahead with a Reg A plus offering uh, to unaccredited investors as a rescission offer or registering that rescission offer is a huge undertaking. So there's this first issue of if you go ahead and you actually follow what the SEC said, Exactly. You might actually be violating securities laws because that rescission offer needs to be made compliant with securities laws. Then you have the second issue that nobody really talks about. It's this idea that these tokens um, may be viewed uh, by certain regulators as truly being a consumer product, or at a certain point, they might may truly become a consumer product or a commodity for that, for that matter. And now if you're going to go ahead and make a rescission offer, or more importantly, if you're going to file a Form 10 and treat these as securities, and now you're not really going to be able to use them the way you intended in the platform because securities aren't freely transferable in that same way, then you're going to have certain, you could have certain issues from other regulators um, when you're, you suddenly have consumer products that aren't doing what you promised those consumers they do. <laughs> that's so that's all very interesting. Okay, so if I am an issuer, and I did my 2017 ICO, um, and it wasn't compliant necessarily with securities laws, what should I actually be thinking today? Should I be scared? Should I go talk, contact the SEC? Should I be thinking about rescission, even though you just said that that's a highly complex process? Where do I, where do I stand? Sh should I be able to sleep at night? <laughs> Well, uh, yes, I think, um, uh, you know, re reading, 
if you have any trouble sleeping at night, you can read some of these SEC settlements and they, they <laughs> help with that. Uh, and if, if, if not, then, you know, maybe a, a strong uh, scotch or something. It, it, the, the answer from, as, as is the, the answer from all lawyers everywhere at all times is, it depends. Uh, if, if you were uh, early on, if you did an ICO early on in the process, even before Dow or Munchie, and you didn't clear that much money and you have enough money that you can reimburse it and your, your business may continue and you're okay with registering your product as a security because you intended to function as a security, uh, in those circumstances, it, it may be a good idea to uh, hire counsel and engage with the SEC and see if you can uh, come clean with the regulators and, and uh, live a, a blessed life. Uh, if some of those uh, don't apply to you, as I imagine are going to be the same, uh, then you've got a tough choice because either you, you go to the regulators and try to come clean knowing that the penalties may be uh, severe, perhaps more severe than your company can bear, or you can kind of wait out and, and hide behind the other 1,600 or 1,700 ICOs that have done it and uh, hope that there are just so many that the SEC is uh, not going to be able to get to them all. It's, it's, like, it's like that old joke, right? I don't have to run faster than the bear. I just have to run faster than 1,600 other ICO issuers. <laughs> I should also add that my statement saying that, that you, know, you know, the rescission offers might be tough does not mean you can't do them. I, I've, done, I've, you know, I've had clients that have done them um, not clients in the ICO, but clients for the rescission offer. And, you know, in that, you know, in those cases, they're, they're manageable. They are expensive, but they're doable. Um, and, and I think, you know, calling counsel to figure out, you know, how to manage the process definitely makes the most sense. The other thing is, it's worth noting that at this point, you know, many issuers ended up selling securities in the form of SAS and intend to distribute tokens, you know, especially for them, it is not too late to figure out what to do. Um, and, and in many cases, rescission offers will be simpler uh, when you've uh, issued a SAF, but you haven't issued tokens yet. And actually, in every case, it's going to be simpler. So, you know, I think there's still, you know, leeway there for issuers to, to figure out how to deal with the situation, especially when they use the SAF. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's true. And, and uh, you know, as, as, as Mark said, it, you, you, you should hire a counsel. It, it can be expensive to hire uh, someone like Mark to figure out how to structure it all the right way uh, the, the, the first time. But, you know, frankly, the only thing uh, uh, more expensive than hiring Mark in the first place is, is not hiring Mark and having the SEC come knocking and, and then you have to hire me. <laughs> you, you believe me, you'd much, you'd much rather be with Mark. <laughs> Well, very good. Um, so, you know, I, I will come back to the issuer thing in Director Hinman's speech. But before we do that, I want to touch on some non-issuer topics, right? So not necessarily companies that went and sold tokens, but maybe other things in the space. And maybe let's start off with how um, celebrities played a part in the space. Um, very recently, there were two celebrities that... Uh, you know, had an SEC uh, settlement um, because they were apparently unlawfully touting uh, ICOs, and those were DJ Khalid and Floyd Mayweather, the boxer. Um, who wants to take this? I mean, the SEC told us early on in the statement, hey, celebrities, like, you should not be touting this stuff, and people did it anyway. So who wants to comment? Jason, go for it. Well, I, 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 would, I would love to uh, comment on DJ Khalid just so I can quote his <laughs> immortal wisdom. You stick out of the crowd, <laughs> baby, it's a no-brainer. It ain't that hard to choose. And uh, in, in this case, I think uh, it should have been a little harder for him to choose to uh, uh, be promoting an ICO and, uh, in particular, a, a fraudulent project that didn't yet have uh, didn't it didn't yet have its its actual project. So when you had uh, Mayweather and Khalid out there uh, promoting the Centratech 
ICO uh, for which they received a lot of uh, money and they didn't uh, disclose that they had received that much money. That, that alone was a problem. But I think what, what really kind of put it over the top for, uh, for, for Mayweather was uh, some uh, bragging about how he was out there spending money on his Centra card, which was something that the company was touting, but which did not actually exist. So it, it, it makes a, a, a big difference. Uh, and I think uh, Mayweather ended up paying a little bit more than uh, Khalid did, yep. uh, partially because of that, that, little, that little extra oomph, not just <laughs> failure to disclose that you're involved in um, you know, fronting for a fraudulent ICO, but that you're, you're, uh, you yourself are fronting a product. You're, you him that he himself was basically uh, committing a fraud by saying he was doing something he wasn't doing. Now they, they were not uh, tagged for fraud. They were instead tagged for the, the non-disclosure of their payments, uh, which is an interesting uh, approach. And it's, I, th I think that these two guys were some of the more uh, popular uh, or well-known uh, touters of ICOs, but they're, they're certainly not the only ones out there. Right. And there are actually a ton, an entire industry of crypto advisors that were, you know, like getting recruited for these projects left and right and definitely not disclosing. Um, so that will, that will definitely be very interesting. Um, okay. So let's turn away from celebrities for a second. Let's talk about exchanges, Ether Delta. Um, Mark, do you want to take this one? Uh, sure, I can take it. So I think, you know, I think most people in this space probably know Ether Delta, uh, which is a, a decentralized uh, exchange, um, which is an interesting point in and of itself that we'll cover. But bottom line is uh, the SEC ended up bringing uh, an, an action against or, or entered into a season desist with uh, um, the Ether Delta founder. Um, the interesting point about this is, well, there's a few things, but first of all, uh, you know, Ether Delta was not owned by that founder anymore. It had been sold to uh, an offshore group. Um, so this is coming after the Ether Delta founder after he was kind of had washed his hands of this. Um, but but the, the SEC kind of noted a few things. First of all, you were trading in securities. Uh, as an exchange, you were, you know, there were buy and sell orders happening on Ether Delta. Um, and if there's, if, if that's the case, and the tokens that were uh, being bought and sold on Ether Delta were securities, which the SEC assumed that they were, um, but did not actually give any examples of any that were, um, the, the, the answer is then the Ether Delta should have been registered as a securities exchange uh, or being relying on an exemption. Now, this was a decentralized exchange, as I noted. So it's interesting, first of all, that the SEC went after a decentralized exchange before a centralized exchange. Now, maybe it would have, it, it's simply the cooperation that they received that, that made it relatively easy to do that. Uh, but a centralized exchange would be an easier uh, case in general for them. Um, but regardless, what the SEC said is, um, you know, you went ahead and created the smart contract, you founder. Um, but not only that, and, and this is an interesting point of distinction potentially for other decentralized exchanges is you still had control over that exchange, which for somebody who thought they actually knew the exchange world pretty, quite well, was actually very disappointing to hear that this founder actually had um, a private key in which it could alter certain aspects of transactions. I think it was the fees paid, which makes it not really all that much of a decentralized exchange if you look at it in, in its true nature of what a decentralized exchange is. Um, and so the question then becomes, so first the SEC's now said, just because you're decentralized, if you've created that smart contract, uh, we'll probably look to you, which I think most people kind of knew already, but, but for you know, uh, you know, people in the, in, in the ecosystem, I'm not sure they necessarily uh, thought of it that way. Um, but then the point of distinction is, but if you're really, truly, totally decentralized, um, is this Ether Delta order really applicable to you? You know, my view is, yes, it is. Um, you created that smart contract. It's on you. But, but that's not necessarily clear from the uh, order. Very interesting. Um, let's talk very quickly about 
the news that just came out Friday about funds. You know, there were also this plethora of crypto funds that were just popping up left and right out of nowhere. I remember seeing one on some Facebook group. Someone was, you know, uh, saying like, oh, hey, we'll, we'll invest on your behalf. They had a website up and everything. I messaged him. I was like, you, you know, you're a fund, right? And you have to have a PPM and all these documents. And the guy had no idea. So um, <laughs> Jason, do you want to take this one? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think you're, you're referring to uh, the matter of coin alpha, which uh, just came out last Friday. And uh, it, it, this was a, a, uh, a settlement with the SEC and, and cease and desist orders. Uh, coin alpha advisors was a uh, California uh, fund uh, basically raising money in order to invest in crypto. It, it was relatively small. It had about uh, 20, 22 investors and, and just over $600,000. The, the issue, one of the issues uh, was that uh, they did not uh, file a registration statement. And there, there was, uh, although they filed a Form D notice of exempt offering, no exemption was available. Uh, for the securities. And I think Mark can, can talk more about that. The other issue uh, was that they didn't have uh, pre-existing relationships with some of the investors. They, they did a general solicitation on a website. So this wasn't a group of friends getting together and saying, hey guys, let's all invest in crypto. It'll be fun. And since uh, you know Amy's the smartest one of us, we'll let her make the decisions. But it's it's all just kind of you know friends. We're not really a formal fund or anything. Uh, we're just we're just friends. Uh, th- this was uh, a general solicitation uh, where they uh, took people and they didn't apparently take reasonable steps to verify that the investors were accredited investors as they might have to do. Uh, when the SEC uh, contacted them and said, uh, what are you doing? They immediately stopped, which uh, as, as you may recall uh, from the, the Munchie settlement is generally a good way to uh, enable yourself to get off with a lighter penalty. And they, they unwound the fund and uh, paid back all of the investors. So n- none of the investors uh, suffered any losses. So as, as a result, they had to pay a civil money penalty of $50,000, which is, is fairly modest as these things go. Um, I, I guess we, we, we can call that what a, a sixth of a Mayweather. I don't know. And, uh, and, and uh, it, it's this I view as a shot across the bow, uh, much the same way that Ether Delta was a shot for exchanges. Uh, I view Coin Alpha as a shot across the bow for funds. Very interesting. Yeah, and, and to the, add to that, Amy, if I can, this is a, you know, it's interesting. They took a, you know, what I view as a, just kind of a, a regular fund. It happened to deal with crypto, but essentially this is just uh, uh, dealing with how do you actually uh, uh, do a securities offering under Reg D? And what is this distinction between a 506B and a 506C offering? Because, um, you know, one of the things that, that was proven is that everyone, all the, I think it's 22 investors were all accredited investors. Um, and if that's the case, that means I was, that, that a Reg D offering was possible. And what they did in the Form D shows is that they relied on 506B. Well, what 506B says is essentially you can get representations from investors saying that they are accredited investors. And as long as you don't have a reason to believe that's not the case, then you can rely on that. But if you're going to do a 506C, meaning you are going to reach out in a general solicitation, i.e. to people you don't have a pre-existing substantive relationship with, then you are going to be doing a 506C offering, which, requ- which kind of requires you to go and essentially check that they are credit investors, which is a step that, that you know, wasn't taken. So I almost view this as a footfault, um, you know, which makes it really interesting that the, the SEC took this action. And that, that one kind of builds off, you know, the SEC had this prior, you know, act order against crypto asset management, I think it was, I think it was in September or so, um, which that was when they went after an, an actual crypto fund, both for, you know, selling unregistered securities, but interestingly also 
it was the first time they went after somebody for not complying with the uh, company for not invest uh, complying with the investment company act. And just like it did with Ether Delta, where it made an assumption that some of the tokens uh, and, and other crypto assets in which it was investing um, or, or in Ether Delta trading were securities, it said the same thing. And it said that since you have 40% of your total assets in digital securities, um, then you are an investment company and you should have registered as an investment company and it didn't. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of uh, the, the, I think, two hits on, on funds, um, but, but I think in very different manners, uh, kind of the SEC went after them. So I feel like, you know, we've now talked about all the various, diff- you know, actions and, and implications for various different types of issuers. We've talked about it for crypto funds, for exchanges, even for the celebrities and advisors who may have been involved in promoting this stuff. Um, and, and the SEC has obviously clarified a lot of the questions that we all have been having for the past year and a half. One place that I feel like they've kind of left the door a little bit open and where I think there's genuinely people still scratching their heads and probably the reason why Mark and I are still getting these LinkedIn messages and emails and calls from people like, I have a utility token, right? Is Director Hinman's speech. He made a speech um, earlier in the year that basically talked about um, the fact that Ethereum might be sufficiently decentralized. Um, Mark, do you want to talk about this really quick and, and talk about the significance or the implications? Yeah, sure. So it was a speech given in June. And um, this was, I think, what everybody has been kind of grabbing onto as um, the the one possibility for still having uh, utility tokens. Uh, and essentially, what Director Hinman did in this speech is kind of walk through um, how it is that you can end up with a, a digital asset that isn't a security. Um, and, and essentially what, what he said is, you know, we're going to leave aside whether, you know, Ether was a security at the time of its uh, distribution, which you can assume means Ether was a security at the time of its distribution, but it did it way before the Dow report. And so we're going to let them off the hook. Um, and then said, but now we don't think Ether is a security, or at least I don't think, because he's speaking for himself and not the SEC. And, um, you know, because, and the reasoning was that Ether is now fully, uh, sufficiently decentralized. And so now what everyone is trying to figure out is what does it mean to be decentral- sufficiently decentralized? And he gave tons of considerations for, for things that should be considered. But, you know, the key thing being, you know, essentially what he's doing there is knocking out one prong of the Howey test, the efforts of others prong. And what what he's saying is, look, when we get to a point where we really can't identify a centralized kind of party that is driving things, then maybe we're sufficiently decentralized and securities laws shouldn't apply. Um, The interesting thing about that is the way this has been interpreted by many, which is, you know, you need to be sufficiently decentralized. Yes. But does that mean that your technology needs to be sufficiently decentralized? Because the answer is, you know, I think most of this technology is sufficiently decentralized. And what people should probably be looking at is, is the ecosystem sufficiently decentralized, right? You take Ether um, and the Ethereum Foundation and you point to the Ethereum Foundation, you say, Ethereum Foundation, you're driving all the value in Ether. And the answer is, no, that's actually probably not accurate. You've got a community of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of developers that's actually driving the ecosystem. That looks a whole lot more like a decentralized ecosystem than the ICO with one company that is sitting on 10 to $50 million and that says, I'm going to spend all of this money so that I can build this ecosystem because building this ecosystem is impliedly going to cause an increase in demand for the tokens, which in turn is going to create an increase in value in your tokens. And so me, centralized ecosystem, centralized player are going to cause the increase in value in your tokens. And as such, we are still a a security. So that leaves the question, what do you do uh, to actually have a decentralized ecosystem? And I think the answer is, if you're an ICO issuer, um, you probably don't have 
a decentralized ecosystem and your token is going to be a security. And if you choose to issue it as a security, um, then you're going to have uh, the repercussions that we've talked about today. Um, the, really, the only alternatives are things that we're starting to see. And, and whether clearly they're alternatives or not is unsure. You know, you've got Grim, for example. Grim, that is going to the token that is essentially uh, going to operate to just like uh, a Bitcoin operates in the sense that it is, uh, you know, you need, you need to actually work to receive tokens. Maybe in that sense, it's not going to be considered to be a security. Or maybe the panacea is the safe, uh, the SAFT. I mean, you know, it's really not clear whether the SAFT works or not. If you look at the last footnote in Director Hinman's speech, he talks about the SAFT, but makes it really unclear what its implications are. So the question's still out there for many ICO issuers. Can I do a SAP, get investors to invest, hold on to the SAP for four years, decentralize my ecosystem by airdropping tokens, and then go ahead and have uh, all the investors receive tokens that are no longer securities at that time because we're sufficiently decentralized? I just made a ton of assumptions in what <laughs> I just said, and it's probably unrealistic. Um, and so for that reason, uh, my point is, it's going to be very, very hard to rely on what Director Hinman laid out here. There's also another point in all of that I want to bring up, which is even if the SEC has a certain point of view of all of this and may not consider a security, there's two other parties out there that I think make this path very, very difficult, right? And that's A, the state regulators, which may not agree and which may not have a test like the Howey test, um, what they consider security might be totally different. And then of course, there's the plaintiff's bar where, because, you know, let's say you don't go and get a no action letter or an opinion letter of count or any of these things, or, or even if you do, right? Like that's not necessarily going to stop uh, one of those class action um, attorneys from coming after you, uh, suing on behalf of an investor who's not entirely happy. And remember, they're contingency-based. I actually just had David Silvers on the show, right? <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and these, these attorneys are bulldogs, right? So they don't care what the regulators think. They only care about getting their their clients' money. So, so it's a very interesting, um, very novel legal question, I think. Um, Jason, I have a question for you. So, you know, we've been in the thick of it now for a good year and a half. Um, you know, the SEC has said a lot. They've done all these enforcement actions. Um, we, we've even heard, you know, about all these subpoenas. What should we expect to see from an enforcement standpoint in 2019? I think we're going to see a lot of continued enforcement action as the SEC continues to sweep up all of the, not all, they can't possibly get to all, but as many as they have the staff capacity for of the ICOs that happened in the last couple of years they are uh, going to leverage themselves. As you said, we've got a, we're seeing a lot of activity in the states, uh, and there have been a, a host of states that have gotten into the act, Colorado, Massachusetts, Texas. We've seen uh, a, a lot of states issuing uh, cease and desist orders against ICOs that are ongoing or uh, penalties against ICOs that have already gone, effectively shutting down those companies at a state securities commission level. So the SEC is cooperating with the states in order to leverage itself because they're, they're just too busy to deal with all of uh, what we've seen. But I, I would expect them to continue to be busy. I think what's happening is that uh, you're seeing the voices of various divisions within the SEC uh, speaking. Uh, Mark made a good point when he said that uh, Bill Hinman wasn't speaking for the SEC, he was speaking for himself, and, and he's, he's uh, the director of the Division of Corporation Finance. I know that the Division of Trading and Markets uh, was uh, leading the uh, charge to say that before any uh, rescission offers could be made, the securities would have to be registered, and that was something that was uh, boggling the enforcement folks who really just wanted to uh, clean up some uh, some cases and move on, uh, but it was difficult for them to do so 
with this registration requirement. So I think you're going to see a continuation of the, the dialogue amongst the various departments in the SEC and even amongst the commissioners who have slightly different views on what to do with the crypto community. In the meantime, the enforcement activity is going to continue. And I think that the SEC is uh, trying to get as much favorable court language as they can on all sorts of issues, uh, trying to get broad language saying that, that cryptocurrency is a security, at least in all of the facts that they're bringing. They're choosing their cases uh, somewhat carefully to try to curate some court decisions. And they also want decisions uh, that are favorable on personal jurisdiction and extraterritoriality, which are going to be particularly significant when you're dealing with decentralized networks that may be operating from outside the, uh, the borders of the United States. Once they get that language, I think at some point you may see a shift from enforcement back into uh, rulemaking. Uh, the uh, commission has appointed a, a, internally a new cyber czar, uh, Valerie Sapanek, who is a very intelligent, very highly regarded uh, attorney, very experienced with the commission a long time. And, you know, I, for one, personally, am hoping that she can wrangle some of these different divisions into some uh, unified guidance. Because as, as Mark said, uh, Hinman's comments left some room for optimism, but it's not quite clear how anyone can, can really make what he said work. And the, 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 the last footnote that Mark pointed to uh, in Hinman's speech about the SAFT uh, concludes by saying uh, that he encourages anyone who has questions on a particular SAFT structure to consult with knowledgeable securities counsel or the staff. And, you know, to be honest, there's so much uncertainty about where this is all going to go in 2019 and what any of it means that while I, I always think it's a good idea to consult with knowledgeable securities counsel, uh, I don't think that uh, anyone, whether it's knowledgeable securities counsel or the staff, has all the, the magic answers that people in the industry might want. Wow, that was very insightful. Um, Mark, on the issuance side, you know, we've seen the emergence of um, this entire security token industry. Where do you think on the issuance side, um, like, you know, what trends do you think we're going to see in 2019 over there? Uh, sure. So I, I think there's there's two different aspects of this that are driving things. Uh, one is is investment desire for for ICOs and STOs, uh, and then legal risks relating to both of them. You know, I think there's there's quite a few folks who are still very comfortable taking the risk uh, if funds are willing to invest in ICOs to essentially try to go abroad and do an offering. Uh, a sale of tokens abroad. Um, now, you know, if you really dig into things like Reg S and, and how they work, the answer is, you know, 99 or maybe 100% of the time, it doesn't work, uh, especially if you start looking at kind of some of the notes to Reg S and not just the, the regulations themselves. Um, so, so I think you're going to continue to see some kind of offshore activity. And as investment desire for ICOs returns, if it does, then you're going to start seeing, I think, an, an increase in that. And it's going to be very interesting to see what the SEC tries to do, if at all, uh, in terms of, of offshore uh, entities relying on Reg S, but, but with respect to secondary trading aspects of, of you know, tokens coming back into the U.S. essentially immediately after the ICO is done. Um, and then you, you're going to kind of balance those kind of risks and benefits of the ICOs with you know, the STOs. While my view is that you shouldn't be balancing those risks because ICOs and STOs are two absolutely fundamentally different things. An ICO 2.0 is not an STO. An ICO is for a cryptocurrency um, or a, a token that has use or that is a currency. An STO is for what most ICOs should have been and is a security. They're two completely different things and have different economics completely. 
Um, and so, you know, the idea that, that folks are going to look at choosing between ICOs and STOs, I think is wrong, but I think realistically that is what's going to happen. And so on the STO side, the question is not one of uh, really uh, legality. I mean, it's very clear that an STO is just an issuance of securities. Now, the SEC is taking, you know, its time on Reg A pluses, but bottom line is it's just an issuance of a security. Um, so, so there's no complexity there. On, that, on the STO side, the question really is what is investor demand for it? And does it change investor demand uh, relative to just the sale of that underlying security? Um, or does the token actually add, in, add anything? And, and I'll leave the last point being that's really going to come down to what happens with liquidity in the STO market. And if you start seeing tons of liquidity there, then, then folks might start kind of moving away and, and thinking, hey, STOs are an interesting alternative to ICOs. Again, notwithstanding the fact that they shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for joining me. It, um, our listeners want to get in touch with you or follow you on social media. Where should they go, Jason? Um, I am at Morrison Cohen, and the best way to reach me is just to Google me, Jason Gottlieb, Morrison Cohen, and I will come right up. And I'll also uh, give a, a quick plug here for the Morrison Cohen cryptocurrency litigation tracker. So all of the uh, cases and, and speeches and regulatory pronouncements that we've been talking about today, plus a whole lot more, uh, we keep track of uh, so that you can kind of follow along and, and get primary materials on, on all of these actions. And uh, I am also on Twitter where I share thoughts on crypto uh, thoughts on politics, uh, some really terrible music that I write, and uh, you know, generally just try to be a real person. Fantastic, Mark. Sure. So first of all, I'll give a plug for Jason as well and his tracko tracker, which is that I used to track my own litigation and then I gave up on doing that because I said somebody does it just as well or better than me. So. I might as well just use his work. So thanks for that, Jason. Um, but yeah, I can, uh, uh, I'm at Fisher Broyles. Uh, again, it's Mark Boron and my Twitter handle is Boron Attorney. You can find me on LinkedIn as well or uh, first name dot last name, mark.boron at fisherbroyles.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, guys. And happy holidays. Thanks, Amy. Thank you, you too. Thanks, Mark. It's been a, it's, it's been a real pleasure. All right.